Hey listeners, Rob here. Today's release is a cross post of an interview from our second show, 80k After Hours, an interview that was super positively received uh, and so which I wouldn't want you to miss. On 80k After Hours, we post interviews like this one, as well as audio versions of 80,000 Hours articles, conversations between staff here at 80,000 Hours, and other experiments that we're we're just trying out. Uh, The tagline for that show is resources on how to do good with your career and anything else we feel like releasing. If you identify as a fan of this show, the 80,000 Hours podcast, or as a fan of 80,000 Hours, or as just really interested in doing good with your money or career, then we've made 80K After Hours with you in mind. Uh, So do go subscribe now. Over there, we just released a lovely conversation between our very own Luisa Rodriguez and our podcast producer, Kieran Harris. I enjoyed the preview I got of this one last week. And I think you probably will as well. They talk through Kieran's views on maybe the all-time most famous puzzle in philosophy, uh, that is free will and determinism. We know that the growth of tumors in people's brains can cause them to suddenly behave really strangely and even do super immoral things that are totally out of their character. But is the situation for the rest of us without tumors all that different? Uh, Or as Kieran puts it, is it just tumors all the way down? Kieran and Louisa then debate the implications that might have for how we ought to feel in response to our own shortcomings and whether determinism ought to make us reject feelings like guilt, uh, shame, pride and anger, something that Kieran at least uh, says that he's largely managed to do. Louisa then shares her fears that she would actually become a worse person if she felt less guilt and shame, specifically whether she might work fewer hours or donate less money or become a worse friends to, to other people. And then they finish by talking about what, if any implications, all of this might have for romantic love, as well as the tragic neurological condition known as jerk syndrome, which probably affects some people close to you, whether they know it or not. So that's over on our other feed, ATK After Hours. That's 80K After Hours. I've actually got my, my own slightly different take on free will and determinism and moral responsibility, uh, which maybe maybe we'll get to someday. But here and now, we've got this interview with Andres jimenez on an unusual topic. But as you'll hear, Andres is incredibly relatable and his project is actually an extremely grounded one. We had this conversation as part of an experiment with recording interviews that I did very little preparation for, but several people thought it was actually, ironically, the best thing we made last year. And I myself learned a lot of entirely new stuff from Andres, so I wanted to share it here as well. Andres and I discuss how he went from working in finance to running the first project ever focused on shrimp welfare, how shrimp farmers and the public feel about shrimp, what shrimp farming actually involves ways of helping shrimp that might be better for the shrimp industry, uh, and plenty more. And for our many Australian listeners, shrimp are what I grew up knowing as prawns. Without further ado, I bring you Andres jimenez Larilla in June 2022, discussing the Shrimp Welfare Project on 80k After Hours. Today, I'm speaking with Andres jimenez Larilla, CEO and co-founder of the Shrimp Welfare Project, a new organization that sprung up from the Effective Altruism community last year in 2021 through the Charity Entrepreneurship Incubation Program. Welcome to ADK After Hours, Andres. Thank you very much, Rob. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get to chat because uh, we got to speak very briefly about the Shrimp Warfare Project when you were in town for Effective Altruism Global in London a few months ago. And you really piqued my curiosity because, I mean, naturally I came into that conversation knowing nothing really about shrimp, uh, let alone shrimp well-being. We didn't get to speak for so long, so I was left with a whole lot of uh, follow-up questions that I, that I wanted to ask. Before we get to that, though, can you maybe uh, kick us off by telling us a thing or two about your personal background? 
Sure. And it was my pleasure to, to, yeah, also to catch up when I was in London. So my background, I was born and raised in Mexico. I grew up in a small city called San Luis Potosí. I eventually moved to Mexico City to go to uni. I studied economics and eventually I went into finance where I have worked for most of my professional career. I worked in investment banking and private equity for Morgan Stanley for several years in Mexico in mergers and acquisitions and eventually also in, in capital markets. Then I transferred to London also with Morgan Stanley where I did private equity, real estate. In 2010, I moved to Doha with my wife to work for the Sovereign Wealth Fund of the state of Qatar to do similar work. And eventually I came back to Europe again to lead the operations in Spain and Portugal for another European real estate private equity fund. Eventually I left that in 2018 and started looking at ways to do good in the world. And that's how Shrimp Offer Project came about. Yeah, so you're doing something off the beaten track now, but you had a like pretty normal, prestigious career in the yeah asset management, Morgan Stanley, mergers and acquisitions. It doesn't exactly scream uh, that you're about to go and start an animal welfare charity, especially one focused on shrimp. Yeah, how did you first learn about effective altruism? So through my wife, my wife has been always the force of good in our household. She's a social worker. She's always been doing kind of good with her professional time. And when I started seriously considering switching careers completely, she was kind of my sounding board to ask her for things that I could do. I was always very interested in, in animal welfare. So at some point during that, between 2018 and when I started from Welfare Project, I was interested in starting an animal sanctuary. It never really felt completely right because I had no skills whatsoever on that area. <laughs> it felt yeah. that my the actual skills I had picked up in my professional time would be kind of wasted. And eventually she mm. emailed me something that she got from a friend and saying, oh, there's this thing, effective altruism. It looks to be up your alley. It's doing good. It's doing good with evidence, numbers, etc. I think you'll like it. Mm. And and I just started going down the rabbit hole and really loved it. I started reading a bunch of books about effective altruism and the precipice, and I reread Animal Liberation, and eventually came across charity entrepreneurship, and that just everything fell into place. I see. So so when did you learn about the charity entrepreneurship incubation program? It might have been late 2019 or early 2020, perhaps. Okay. When I applied, I always thought that they were going to um, figure me out and, and okay. say, oh, this guy who's been doing real estate forever, we're not going to let him into the program. He knows nothing about charities. Yeah. Um, but I applied, I went through the application process and eventually I got in. Yeah. I kept thinking that they would figure me out. Um, <laughs> but then I realized that a lot of people had very diverse backgrounds. Some people had been in altruism and other people just had been in entrepreneurship. Other people just were very smart. Most everyone was pretty smart. Yeah, I would think that'd be super impressed by the kind of professional experience that you have, that it, you could actually bring a whole lot of knowledge that would be unusual among the rest of the cohort and potentially pair up with someone who's perhaps been involved in the charity side of things for a bit longer, which it sounds like maybe something like that has happened. When you came into the cohort, you didn't have a particular idea for what organization you were going to start, right? You were coming in basically to try to both match with a co-founder and, and match with an idea. That's correct. Some people were very clear on the idea that they wanted to found and they were very attracted to a very specific thing that they you know, felt very strongly about or were emotionally attached to. I really cared about animals, but I cared deeply about humans and I cared about many things. And it just 
looked like it was a good opportunity to explore. There were many of the ideas that really spoke to me. So there was one that was a postpartum family planning intervention in, in Ghana, which I loved, and I think they're repeating it this year. There was another one to modernize alcohol taxation policies, which eventually became an organization uh, which I really, really liked. And they, they had two, two more, well, two animal interventions. One was to improve the feed of egg-laying hens to avoid bone fractures. And that became the healthier hens organization that now exists. Yeah. And the other one was shrimps. Um, frankly, when, when I read about shrimps, I thought, this is very idiosyncratic. <laughs> I, I had cared deeply about animals for a very long time, but I had shrimps had never crossed my mind. Mm. Um, but when I read about the numbers, the the evidence of this of sentience, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I just really it was like lifting the veil, and I couldn't go back. And then my co-founder was really interested in this one, and I, we really hit it off. So it just yeah, everything worked out. Yeah. Okay, so you were somewhat persuaded by reading, learning more about shrimp and learning about the evidence in favor and, and I guess also the evidence against uh, them being sentient and potentially being able to to suffer. And I guess there's also just the sheer numbers of shrimp out there and I guess the fact that <laughs> the area seems pretty neglected. There's not a lot of other, other, other groups involved. Were there other, other motivations for choosing shrimp welfare over the other options? I think there was one additional one, which was my counterfactual impact. It felt that the program really needed four co-founders or eventually there were five who were interested in animal charities, but there was a, a probability that one of the charities would not be founded if not all of us who were interested in animals decided to found one. So okay. I, I thought, you know, alcohol taxation looks extremely promising, but there were people who were much better than me, much better placed than me that, to do that, who knew a ton and, you know, Shrimp doesn't immediately speak to absolutely everyone, and it did to me. Yeah, and I am. It really, it felt like there was a chance that it would not be founded. It, it if Aaron, my co-founder, and I did not decide to go forward with that. So that was another, another in addition to the ones that you mentioned. Yeah. So has there been has, has anyone worked on shrimp welfare before? I guess uh, before before you go on, I should say uh, shrimp. By shrimp, you mean what? I guess in Australia we call prawns, and I think in some country are called are called prawns, right? That's correct. So I think Australia, New Zealand, UK, Ireland, maybe I'm missing a couple. I think you would call them prawns. In other parts of the world, they call them shrimps. I think king prawns as well. We mostly, in order to avoid confusion, also industry and academia, tend to refer to the species that we focus on. It's um, vaname. And we also work with, uh, with monodon, which are king prawn and tiger prawn would be another way to call them. I see. Yeah. Okay. So what is, when you arrived at this topic, what had already been done or what was being done, if, if anything? That's a really good question. I think there have been people who've done amazing work in the past. To, to the credit of the effective altruism community, I must say that the topic of invertebrate suffering and invertebrate aquatic suffering is much more prominent in the EA community than it is, let's say, at the, in the animal movement at large. But um, there had been a few campaigns run by organizations like focalized campaigns by Animals Australia uh, with ISOC ablation, which we'll talk about later. There was a, an interesting one in Japan called hashtag shrimp matter. Compassion and world farming are doing a few things, running pilot programs. 
And then there's one organization, well, Crustacean Compassion, Aquatic Life Institute, and, and a few other people, organizations are focusing in you know, animals that include uh, shrimps. But as far as I'm aware, the only other organization that focuses exclusively on shrimps is there's one small one in, uh, in the Philippines called Tambuyuk Development Center. And us, I think we are the only ones who focus exclusively on this issue. Yeah. And I think one of the things you read early on that helped to persuade you was an article that I think was written by Rethink Priorities, where they were basically just evaluating the what what, what we know about this topic, the, the the basic facts. Yeah, and I guess we'll, we'll stick up a link to, to that article if it's if it's online. Is that right? That, that's correct. I think Rethink Priorities did a really... Um, well, the, all this work that they've done around sentience with many different species, I think, was very useful for us to evaluate whether, you know, for my co-founder and I to to decide whether the evidence pointed towards strong probability that these animals are sentient. Also, rethink priorities are some of the people who have done the best estimates of of the number of individual animals that are involved in the sort of in the shrimp business. So their their work in general was was very very useful. Fish ethos base was also very good. I think some of the, this work might not be might not be published though. Yeah. Um, okay. And since then, sentience. I think the prominence of sentience and the evidence of sentience has. We've been lucky that there's been a lot of stuff published in in the past few months that solidifies our position that that shrimps are sentient. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's get into the technical stuff. What does shrimp farming look like? That's a very good question. And I hope not to go too much at, at too much length. But for a shrimp to get to someone's plate, it goes through you know, 20 different hands. It starts with, let's imagine it's a, a shrimp that was raised in, in India. So someone in India who works at a hatchery, which is the facility where the babies are hatched, that person would have had to buy a sexually reproductively mature animal from somewhere in the US, in Texas or Hawaii typically, which they're the dominance in the market. They would have brought the animals to India, put them in maturation tanks, hold them for a few months. Typically, the females would go through this eye stalk ablation practice, which essentially is cutting or slicing or crushing one or two of the eyes to induce egg laying. Then they would lay the eggs, they would spawn typically in these plastic lined small circular tanks. They spend about 30 days there. Eventually when they become juveniles, which is a, a stage at which they call post larvae, they would at day 30 or 40, they would scoop them out and either take them to the grow out ponds where they spend the rest of their lives. Or if it's a system where they, they're using nurseries, they might go to a separate intermediate pond where they grow another, let's say, month in similar plastic lined tanks to get them to to a later stage in their lives, which makes them more resilient. But eventually they all get to these grow out ponds, which are just large tanks somewhere close to a coast, most likely in Asia. And there they spend another between 50 to 120 days, depending on the size of the prawn that a farmer wants to get to. And then there's a whole issue of slaughter, processing, selling, etc. Yeah. Okay. So so there's this so there's this hatching process, and then they're sent off. Basically, they spend most of their life, which I guess is three to six months, in these fairly large pools where 
these are mostly artificial pools, I guess, in the, in the intensive ones, which make up most of the industry, where I guess they're just like constantly fed and they scuttle around in these kind of big plastic tanks. Um, and I guess the crowdedness varies, but obviously they're they're packed in pretty closely because that is the thing that at least plausibly is the most productive from the from the farm's point of view. They want to they've only got so much land, so, so many tanks, and they want to make as much prawn as possible. That's that's correct. I mean. There are several different systems and the intensity of the production systems vary wildly. So it goes from, in in Latin America, for example, they use mostly what they call extensive methods. So it's in earthen ponds, very, very large, very large ponds in, you know, a couple of hectares maybe of water, about one meter and a half in, in depth. And in those systems, there's maybe five to 10 animals per square meter. They're typically not fed and there's no mechanical aeration. And then you have all the way up to the super intensive systems where they're tiny ponds, maybe just a few meters in in diameter, plastic lined, indoor, highly, highly managed water aeration everywhere and several hundred animals per cubic meter, as you say. And yeah, the profitability really increases, but the, the level of, of investment that's required to get to those other systems also increases dramatically. And one of the things that we work on, which you correctly said, is, is crowdedness. So depending on the system, there are levels that the water just cannot sustain the demand, the biological demand that the animals place on, on the water. So they become sick, etc. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that. So I guess their needs are, they, they need, okay, well, I guess like, unlike us, they don't have to drink, but uh, they, they need oxygen. And I suppose when they're very crowded, then not enough oxygen is getting into the water naturally. So you have to be aerating it in order to, to sustain them. Otherwise, they'll start suffocating. Uh, and I guess also they, they need food. What um, in, the, in the more intensive ones where they're feeding them, what are they giving them? So yeah, you're right. They need, they need oxygen. So they're, they're aerated. Then they need the water to be within certain parameters, the, D, the, the pH and, and a number of other variables. And in terms of the feed, they're typically fed pellets, which are produced by feed manufacturers and have typically a good percentage of fish oil and fish meal, which is produced from the, what's called trash fish, which is not a, a term that I really like, but it's just other fish. That's why when people talk about eating fish that are fed other fish, there's just the the impact in terms of suffering and and the environmental burden that it places on the you know on the food production systems worldwide is is really, really intense. So um yeah, shrimps need need to have a, a certain content of protein that comes typically from fish and oil. Is that kind of uh, bycatch fish that isn't saleable to humans because it's uh, too low quality, or, or is this um, is this so-called trash fish uh, also grown in aquaculture? No, it's typically it's typically what you mentioned at the beginning, and it's it's not always a fish that is not sellable to humans, but but most of it is, and at least that is the goal of the feed manufacturers to use more and more that type of bycatch to at least minimize somewhat the impact that the fishery industry has. Yeah. You mentioned that in Latin America, they tend to use this extensive farming method, which I guess involves like much larger pools. I'm guessing possibly these are kind of like natural lakes or something rather than in plastic containers. And and they're doing it at a much lower density. Um, Why why do they use that approach in, in Latin America? 
I think it has mostly to do with the type of water and type of soil that they have and, and the climate. So yeah, it, it allows them in Ecuador, which is the largest producer by far in, in Latin America along the Guayas River. There's just a very natural flow of, of water into the ponds. Whereas in, in Asia, these ponds need to be filled many times with bore water. So yeah, it's easier for them to have that natural sort of oxygenation of, of the, of the ponds and, and the, like the maintenance of the water quality um, on a, naturally. Okay, yeah. And you said they're not feeding them. So I guess they're, they're eating algae like they would in a natural environment or something like that? Exactly. So it's algae and, and phytoplankton and it's just what, what it's called the, the primary productivity of, a, of the pond. There's just nutrients in the water that the shrimps would typically eat. In more intensive systems, the reason why you cannot do that is just because you have way too many animals for that natural feed that's suspended in the water to feed all of the, all of the animals. So that's why you need uh, these pellets. Yeah. So how many shrimp are produced for human consumption each year, roughly? So that's a very good question. And it's not one that's easy to answer because contrary to many terrestrial species uh, with aquatic animals, they're not counted as individuals. So all we get is tonnage produced world uh, worldwide. And even there, the tonnage varies widely. There are some countries that the market sort of estimates that their their official figures are not super reliable, but it's in terms of tonnage is somewhere between four and a half million tons to six million tons worldwide. And that when we translate it into individuals is somewhere between 300 billion and 400 billion shrimps per year. And that's farmed uh, shrimps alone. Just to give your audience a bit of um, context, that's equivalent to the number of humans who have ever walked the earth. So the numbers are huge and that's just farmed. And when we look at wild caught shrimps or the ones that are caught in the ocean by the large fishing vessels, the numbers go into the tens of trillions. So I think I've seen some estimates in the sort of range of 30 trillion animals per year. That and the, and the sentience evidence is what made me and Aaron to just say that we need to do this. I see, yeah. What fraction of all shrimp that are consumed by people are produced using farming as opposed to being caught wild? It's more than half. I don't have it in the top of my head, but I believe it's somewhere between 55 to 60%. Okay, so there's 300 or 400 billion shrimp being raised in these farms roughly each, each year. But you said there's like 30 trillion shrimp of some sort being caught wild. And yet, uh, how do you uh, make, make that consistent with the, with the fact that like farming is probably a majority of all human consumption? Yeah, so the difference is that the species that are caught in the ocean are typically much smaller animals. Ah. So maybe the, the weight of a farmed, your typical farmed prawn would be 10 times or, well, the number that would imply the, the, yeah. these differences that I mentioned. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a difference in species. I see. So, so the wild ones are kind of those tiny little shrimp uh, yeah. that you might imagine. Okay. So pushing on, how do shrimp farmers feel about their shrimp? Do, do they kind of naturally care about their well-being or, or see them as you know, moral patients that, that can suffer? Yeah, that's something that surprised us, at least the percentage when we did a survey in India. We ran, it's a small sample, but 95% of the farmers that we asked whether they felt that their shrimps could feel pain and stress, mm. 95% of, said, of them said yes. 
One of them actually had a very endearing answer saying that he spent more time with his animals than he did with his family. And that if his shrimp suffered, he said, I also suffer. So it's very interesting. And on the other hand, I think it's unsurprising because these people spend a significant amount of time seeing the behavior of the animals and they're much less skewed than, I guess, consumers who'd never see them alive are. Like, right. I'm almost betting that you or your audience very rarely have they ever seen an, an image of a, of a shrimp that's alive and swimming other than, yeah, m- most of them will have just seen them in cocktails. Right. And these farmers just see them all the time. They see them when they're sick. They see them when they're feeding, when they're swimming about. So they really cared about them. I see. So they're exposed and seeing shrimp all the time. And I guess it sounds like their behavior is moderately complicated, that they're, that they're doing interesting things that make them seem smart enough and I guess reactive and responsive enough to, to circumstances that it's very natural to feel that they can suffer or experience pleasure the same way that dogs or pigs do. Exactly. I couldn't have put it better. It's very difficult to see them in farms because the, the water in which they're raised is typically very has murky. high turbidity. So it's very yeah, it's very murky. But once you actually see them sometimes in tanks and in trade conferences and things like that, when they're fed they swim, they catch their feed, they take it to a little corner where they, each of them can kind of eat it in peace. Hmm. It's very rare to see them behaving. And there's good research ongoing to understand behavioral issues of, of shrimps. Um, it's underway. I see. So maybe, they, yeah, they're more perhaps like crabs or lobsters or octopus even than, than one might imagine in terms of just like how their behavior looks. I think exactly that was, a, that was the argument that the scientists at the London School of Economics made when they wrote this paper for the UK sentience bill recently in, in November last year. They did a full review of the evidence of sentience of, of cephalopod mollusks and decapods, hmm. which are the ones that you exactly mentioned. And what they find out is that for those species that have been extensively researched, there is very good evidence that they're sentient. And what they say is the evidence in some other species is not as strong, but it's only because they haven't been researched for kind of sentience purposes as much as other species like, for example, crabs and octopuses, as you said. Yeah, I guess what sort of criteria are they using? Or like, you know, when they study a species to try to figure out whether it's sentient, what sort of things are they looking at to try to reach an evaluation? Yeah, that's a good point because... It's very difficult to have a smoking gun that tells you that an animal is sentient, right? So right. in this specific case, what they did is they looked at, I believe it was eight different indicators of sentience. And those included whether they had nociceptors, so the right body parts to detect noxious stimuli, whether they had protective behaviors, adaptive behaviors, if anesthesia was applied to certain body parts, whether the reaction changed, which would indicate that it's not a reflex, things like that. And then they they ranked whether the evidence was very high, high to moderately low, etc. for each individual species. And then they came up with this, an overall assessment that all cephalopods and decapods should be protected by UK animal welfare law. And eventually they did. And this was a report that was commissioned by the UK government to the to the London School of Economics. So it was a very independent type research. Yeah. Okay, so shrimp, they kind of, uh, they respond to injuries. They like probably learn from negative experiences that they have. Did they respond to anesthetic? I know that's one of the tests that people sometimes use. 
So yeah, that, um, exactly. There's a paper that shows the the responses that different decapods have to anesthetics, as you said. And I think with shrimps in particular, what they do is they they pinch one of the antennas. They see how they behave, like they flick their tails, um, they jump out of the water, etc. And then in a second stage, they apply anesthetics mm. and repeat the experiment, and the behavior changes significantly. Like the time that they rub their little antenna mm. is much, much lower. They probably swim normally quicker and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Okay, so yeah, so they're tending to injuries and then they also tend to them less when uh, when they give an anesthetic. Just as a decide, it's, it's remarkable to me that uh, anesthetics that we've presumably developed for humans also work on shrimp. Like uh, they're so far away in the phylogenetic tree of life and yet so much of the basic machinery <laughs> of feeling seems to be very, very like similar enough. That's true. One of the arguments that some people made exactly used to be, well, opioids don't necessarily work the same in some of the animals. But Mm. as as you say, not necessarily all of the anesthetics need to work the same, but researchers have found anesthetics that do apply and do do have an effect on animals and it changes behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about how how the farmers feel and they pretty overwhelmingly think that probably there's something that it's like to be a shrimp or at least that they suffer in some common sense way. What do you know about uh, the the general public? I guess either in Spain or the UK or the countries um, where shrimp farming actually occurs. It has different layers. The first one is when the stakes of the conversation or with mm. with people is not very high, and it's just, do you think that animals, these types of animals, can feel stress and can feel mm. pain? Typically, there's not a, a huge resistance to the idea that they do. Mm. When the conversation is about whether that has an ethical repercussion, then mm. the reaction from other people tends to be a bit more... Yeah, protective of, you know, diets and and things like that. And there, I think what we have found in some consumer research that my co-founder ran in in Europe was that once that people were shown even a very quick infographic of this idea that decapods have been included in the UK sentience bill and a couple of other things, the opinion of the people that we interviewed really changed dramatically to saying, oh, okay, that makes a big difference. If it comes from an independent research and has re- mm. recently been reflected in UK law, then they grant credence to the fact that they are sentient. And they've, mm. we've even seen that, at least in this survey, they would be willing to pay a premium for higher welfare shrimps, which... We would have to see whether that really translates into an actual purchase change. But at least in principle, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, an audience member was curious to know, do you feel viscerally motivated by the prospect of shrimp suffering or uh, is your interest and motivation somewhat more on the intellectual side? So until very recently, my response would have been completely intellectual side. Hmm. It was not until I visited farm, I think most of us during our lifetimes will will never visit a shrimp farm or most people in the world would not visit a a shrimp farm or see a shrimp being taken out of the water. When my co-founder, our program director in India and myself, we went to see what what is called harvesting, which is the moment in which the animals are scooped out of the water and eventually kind of put in crates and things like that. That process to me made me also viscerally care about this issue. Yeah. But it definitely came through the more intellectual part. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, we haven't talked about the slaughtering process, the killing process. I suppose people who don't want to listen to this might want to skip forward a minute or two. But yeah, do you want to give us a brief summary of what that looks like? Yeah, so that's one of the four areas that we focus on um, as Shrimp Offer Project to improve the welfare or reduce the suffering of the animals. So slaughter, basically, what happens is that when the farmers want to, quote-unquote, harvest, they call a team of people who basically have a net. They come and they drag a net from one side of the pond to the other, basically cornering the animals. They scoop them out with nets. Then they put them in crates where they're drained of water so that they can weigh them without the water changing the weight that they're actually selling to the next person. And during this time, they spend you know several minutes out of the water without water all on top of each other. So... Theoretically, you could think that they're crushing one another. Right. Eventually, they're weighed and then they're put in a separate crate where they, at least the best practices in the industry, would dictate that they're put in ice water slurry where they will slowly become anesthetized and, and die. What we have seen in several occasions is that they're actually, once they're weighed and once they're put in ice water slurry, they're actually just put in, in another crate where they put a little bit of ice on top of each layer of animals, which to me would look more to be just protecting the freshness of the of the product for human consumption rather than really protective of the welfare of the animal. I see. Do shrimps suffocate when they're out of water or is it just very uncomfortable for them? Um, they do asphyxiate. I see. So industry practices, or like the suggested practice is to put them in a combination of water and ice that is sufficiently cold that they gradually lose consciousness. But in practice, they're putting like the bare minimum ice on them, I suppose, because that's like easier and saves costs. And they're kind of just doing the bare minimum that's necessary to avoid them going bad, basically, and not not being able to be to, to be sold for a good price. Yeah, that's what I presume that's, is the reason. I mean, there's that and there's the fragmented chain of custody of shrimps. And I think of, you know, seafood in general, the, the the person who is buying it or the processor who is buying it who really cares potentially about the freshness because the stress in, in a moment of slaughter has been proven to deteriorate the quality of the tissue of the animals, right? So right. In, at least arguably, the processors would be interested in making sure that the animals suffer the least possible. Hmm. But there's at least one middleman between the farmer and the processing plant, who really all he cares about is to get getting the shrimps from point A to point B hmm. and putting the most shrimps that they can in their trucks without the shrimps going bad. So yeah, I think it's a bit of both. So I guess some of the shrimp that are not near ice would basically die of asphyxiation and other ones, I guess, might die of crushing and others that are, I guess, closer to the ice might die of freezing, basically. So it's kind of various different ways that they actually cease to be conscious. Correct. And I think when we first looked at this idea of putting the animals in ice water slurry, we thought that was, from some papers that we had read, we thought that that was at least a, a good attempt to try to protect their welfare or, or, or reduce their suffering. But at least in conversations with people who are now looking at this issue much more closely, to us, some of them have expressed doubts whether ice actually, all it does is that it slows bodily functions of the animals right. and might even make them take longer to die. And so potentially even just extending the suffering. 
I haven't seen any academic paper published um, about this, but I've heard this from more than one academic. I see. Yeah. So what in your mind then would be a less cruel way of slaughtering shrimp on a, on a large scale? So it seems that electrical stunning might be a promising thing to do. And that is what Compassion and World Farming are exploring with Tesco and some of their suppliers. I think there's a, there's a very good chance that that is at least better than what happens today. We are aware at least a couple of academics doing robust research on whether this actually is rendering the animals unconscious hmm. or rather just almost burning them alive. I think it's a bit, there's a very good chance that this is a better alternative. Okay. And once the research comes out, we'd be interested in seeing how that technology is deployed further. So, uh, so that, would this be while they're in their original pools, you would run a massive like electric current through the pool such that they would all basically immediately be stunned or killed and then you could scoop them out and um, weigh them and things like that. But hopefully they'd be unconscious from that point on. So that would be the ideal, absolutely, because that prevents then the suffering between scooping them out of the water and the moment that they're stunned. At the moment, the technology requires for the animals to come out of the water, then they're put in a conveyor belt of sorts. And then there are a couple of electrodes that touch the animals as they go through, electrocutes them and renders them unconscious. That still has that part of scooping them out of the water while conscious. Ideally, you would like to do what what you just mentioned. Then there's the tricky thing about safety of just putting electricity through such a massive body of water with people around and Mm. humidity, etc. And then the final thing, there's like a technicality that highly saline water is highly conductive or the water with the salinity levels that are favored by these animals is highly, highly conductive. So potentially this is what I've heard by some academics, the current might just go around the animal because the water is more conductive than the tissue of the animal itself. So it seems like it could be tricky to electrocute them in the water unless you decrease the salinity of the bones that they're in, which would require a lot of water and it would be a difficult process. So I see. Okay, so there's some technical complications there. And this was not not that many people working on the issue. (laughs) Okay, so we've talked about some of the welfare issues there with slaughter. What are the welfare issues earlier in the in the process when they're kind of in the growing phase? Yeah, those are maybe the ones that we focus on the most, which is, as we talked about earlier, the growth ponds is a stage in which these animals spend most of their lives. And there we identify two areas of potential welfare improvements. The first one is water quality being at the level that these animals require. So dissolved oxygen being in the right ranges, pH being in the right ranges, making sure that there are no contaminants and things like that. So that's one area of improvement. Yeah. The second one is stocking densities, which as you said at the beginning, the natural instinct to maximize profitability would be to push the stocking densities to the maximum. Mm. That is in theory what you would expect. But in the reality, what we've seen is that pushing stocking densities too high beyond what what is called the carrying capacity of of the pond, that compromises the immune systems of the animals because Mm. they're typically stressed um, and eventually they are more susceptible to disease and and they um, grow slower and they die a greater percentage of them die. So what we're trying to do is to convince 
farmers that it's in their best interest to really adjust the stocking densities to what their water can really sustain. And we have found that this message has been very well received by some very, very prominent producers, uh, at least in India. And we're very happy about that because they've realized that just the really high stocking densities just puts the whole system at risk because mm. disease spreads like wildfire. So the more that the, every farmer does more prudent farming practices, the more they protect one another. And finally, ice talk ablation, this practice that I was mentioning earlier, yeah. um, I think to the credit of the industry though, um, because it's been proven that ice talk ablation actually is not necessary if the broodstock are really taken care of. There's really important research that was published a couple of years ago where Simao Zacarias and some of his colleagues proved that non-ablated broodstock can be just as productive in terms of number of eggs laid, but mm. more importantly, their offspring can be more resilient to stressors and certain diseases. Mm. So the industry itself is moving in the direction of phasing this out. Um, we'd see. love to see that happen quicker, but they're going there. So this ice stock ablation... Yeah, I kind of wish I could go back to a time when I'd never heard of eye stalk ablation, but this is when they kind of crush the eye of the female shrimp in order to induce them to lay eggs sooner and in larger number. It's like, I mean, it sounds awful. And it also, it sounds very strange that crushing the eye has that effect. Is there any way of explaining why that would be? Yes. So that was figured out by, you know, the people who were trying to raise shrimps back in the 70s or 80s. And basically, it's because there's a certain, the crustaceans and specifically prawns have um, a gland in behind their eyes that secretes a hormone that regulates the amount of eggs that a female would lay. So essentially what happens is that when a female in these tanks is, um, you know, stressed as they typically would be in a, in a tank that is not exactly what they would want to, where they would want to reproduce, they realize that this this gland secretes this hormone and they basically do not lay eggs. So by removing the eyes, it just goes in overdrive huh. and it starts laying eggs at a much higher rate than they normally would be. That eventually also means that they're subjected to a lot of stress and they become depleted much more much quicker. So broodstock who are subjected to this practice, they either die from the practice or they die sooner because just it, it puts a lot of strain in their um, physiology. I see. Okay. So that sounds pretty horrible, but uh, it sounds like you're optimistic that eye stalk ablation will probably be phased out because it turns out that the downsides of it in terms of the health of the, all, the, all the longevity of the brooding shrimp and the healthiness of their offspring is sufficient that it's actually not clear that it even improves the bottom line to engage in eye stalk ablations. It's the kind of thing that you could, it sounds horrible and it's maybe not even making them any money. So, so they might cut it out. Exactly. And it's the, I, I would say it's the one thing about shrimp welfare that everyone can viscerally connect to, right? It's much yeah. more difficult to explain to someone that the water, the pH might be out of balance yeah. and that that's causing harm to the animals. But when people see, there's videos, training videos from industry themselves where they yeah. show the practice. And I think it really, yeah, that's something that really touches most people. I see, I yeah. How, how do they feel about it? Do they feel uncomfortable describing or justifying or, or engaging in ice talk ablation? I would say the people who do not do it, the, the corporates that I've spoken to who do not do it, feel very proud that they don't. I yeah. see, yeah. Okay. 
So I suppose the, the people who actually have to do it, uh, maybe they find a way to convince themselves that it's okay. But kind of <laughs> everyone else, as soon as you move away from them, then people feel a great deal of discomfort with this with this whole idea. Yeah. Let's push back to the uh, the, the crowding issue, which is like pretty central, probably the main thing that that you're working on. It sounds like you might have a, like a somewhat easy. I guess ideally, want to like make massive improvements, but on the current margin, in terms of making incremental improvements from where we are now, you might have a relatively easy opportunity in that some farms might be crowding the shrimp uh, to such a degree that they suffer from stress and they don't grow as well and they die more often. And then you might have these kind of pandemics of diseases that run through these super overcrowded pools. They're doing that to such a degree that maybe, again, it's not even making them any more money and they would be just as profitable or more profitable if they if they backed off somewhat on the stocking density. Is that about right? That's exactly the way we think about it. Yes. And there's a final sort of cherry on top that you would expect that if farmers stock their pools at lower stocking densities, then that means that they can grow their animals at larger sizes, which sell at higher prices per kilo. So the profit that they theoretically could be sacrificing by stocking at lower stocking densities on the one hand, it might be somewhat compensated by the lower probability of disease, as you said. And even lower than that, it might be compensated by the price premium per kilo that they might be able to get in the market for their shrimps. Yeah. Which is great because it's, you know, farmers might earn the same amount of money. They might be producing the same amount of biomass, but with less number of animals, which would translate into less suffering. Yeah, what what sorts of diseases do shrimp get when they're packed together really tightly? So they're very specific to shrimps. Uh, the most common ones would be white spot syndrome, white gut syndrome, and white feces syndrome, which is somewhere, they basically all relate to either the shrimps die in a short period of time or they start growing very, very slowly. That's kind of a really big thing for farmers because it costs them the same to feed an animal that's not growing as quickly than, you know, the one that, that does. Uh, yeah, what, what sorts of diseases? They, is these viruses or bacteria or something else? They're both. Okay. What is it? So these are, these, are, these are symptoms, but there's a whole lot of different underlying infections that could drive this. And I guess they just spread through an entire tank incredibly quickly. That's correct. And because the tanks are so close to one another and most times they discharge water into the same canals and things like that. They also spread from tank to tank very, very easily. And, you know, there are practices like the nets being used in the same ponds. They normally disinfect them, but they're they're so tight. And then there's things that are difficult to just control. There's a a bird that comes and and catches a a shrimp in one pond that has disease and just drops it in uh, in the Mm. neighbor's pond. So it's once disease... Like controlling COVID. not practical. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. I see. Yeah. It sounded like not only does it spread within various different tanks within the same intensive farm, but that farmers get pissed off when other farmers are engaging in practices that fo- foster these diseases because it spreads between farms as well. And so it can threaten the entire industry in a whole region potentially. Absolutely. And I think that's the argument to be made for lower stocking densities to be imposed not only as um, each farmer to individually decide on them, but as as regulation to, yeah, because you have the problem of the of the coordination, right, and and free riders. So if every single farmer just start, starts um, 
um, stalking at very low stalking densities, then that provides a sort of herd immunity to the one farmer who might want to do it yeah. um, at much higher density. So you have a coordination issue there. So mm. hopefully that needs to be put in, in some regulation that then needs to be respected by everyone. Yeah. What do you think is kind of a, I guess it's a very hard question to answer, but what is the quality of life of a shrimp in one of these like reasonably intensively farmed areas? Like I imagine I spend most of my time maybe like re- some some resting and some feeding and then other parts just like swimming around, like avoiding avoiding being too close to other shrimp. Uh, is Is this like an unpleasant existence as far as you can tell, or is it a kind of like neutral or bad one? I don't know. And uh, the, yeah. the, the, the real honest answer is we don't know. We really want researchers to do more work on shrimp behavior to really understand preferences of shrimps. So mm. right now we're having to base a lot of our decisions with what we would call like good beds of not causing harm. So things that we know that definitely decrease mortality and decrease disease and things like that. But in terms of whether a life is net positive or net negative and, and how positive or negative they are, I would be very uncertain. Charity Entrepreneurship did an estimate sometime back when they were thinking about the intervention of shrimps, and I, they deem that it's quite negative experience. I see. And is that mostly because they're packed so closely together that I imagine they're just under like quite serious levels of stress, basically at a, at, at all times? It's like it's a very unnatural circumstance, I would imagine, for shrimp. Who uh, I, I don't think they move in like dense schools or anything like that in the wild, do they? In the wild, in particular, they they would spawn in one area. So in, in an estuary, they would go out to the open water. They would spend some time there. Eventually, they come back to the estuary. So they, they really change environments, mm. whereas in farm shrimps, they go from a plastic tank to another plastic tank to perhaps another plastic tank, okay. uh, but maybe not, maybe an earthen pond. We're not sure. I mean, it feels that from a human preference or a veil of ignorance you would presume that it's not a a net positive life yeah but we want more research to understand that yeah okay so it's an extremely like tedious and monotonous environment that you're in this is like exactly the same thing constantly for for your entire life which is probably quite unnatural a shrimp solitary animals naturally do they they tend to just like hang out by themselves uh, when when possible it depends on the species Hmm. um so there are about two thousand species of shrimps the ones that are farmed the most are like 80% of the total volume in the world are two species, Vaname and, and Monodon. Hmm. And their Monodon are much more solitary and aggressive than, than Vaname. And it, okay. I think that's why Vaname has been favored over Monodon because it can be raised at, at higher stocking densities. It doesn't necessarily mean that they enjoy it. And that's one thing that we would want to understand. Yeah. But they, they definitely can, can, withstand higher densities yeah okay so is your current like primary strategy at the moment to basically collect information that uh, helps to support the case that current stocking densities are too high from the shrimp industry's like own point of view from it in terms of maximizing its bottom line and basically persuade them from from a primarily economic case that they should reduce stocking densities because it's both good for the shrimp and good for them Yes, I think that's a fair way to say it. We want to already start doing some pilot programs with farmers in in both India and Vietnam to try this out, to help them monitor their water quality more frequently and Mm. and also to stock at lower densities Mm. and show them that that's a viable alternative. 
and yeah, those are the, the two things that we're focusing on the most. And we're exploring different pathways. Some are through large events with uh, um, many, many different farmers. Some are partnerships with universities. And we're seeing which one turns out to be more promising. What is the Shrimp Welfare Project's kind of relationship with the shrimp farming industry? How do, how do they feel about you and how do you present yourself? We have decided to position ourselves as collaborative with industry. Mm. We definitely considered at the beginning the whole range, the whole spectrum of you know being closer to industry or being more antagonistic. Mm. We feel that there is space for the whole spectrum. But in order for us to have an impact sooner mm. rather than later, and because there are things that are, can be done that are not necessarily in huge opposition to industry, mm. we, we thought that positioning ourselves as working collaboratively would be, would be a safer or a better bet. Yeah. Do you go to shrimp conferences and you know, meet with people who are involved in the industry and making decisions about how to set up their farms? All the time. Okay, I see. Yeah. Yes. So we, in 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 India, we met with maybe fifty different people in the supply chain, from farmers to wow. processors to exporters, owners of hatcheries, and we yeah we attend aquaculture conference frequently. Yeah. Well, are they suspicious of you because they think that your motivation at the end of the day is not to maximize shrimp industry profits, but to to help shrimp? No, I think they appreciate. This is this has been at least our experience to date. They I think they appreciate that the system has been pushed to a limit that is not that you know that has wreaked havoc mm. to the welfare of the animals, to the welfare of the farmers and to potentially even the profit and loss accounts of the corporates themselves. Yeah. And they see us as a vehicle, some of them, the ones that see us more, more favorably, I would say, see us as a vehicle for us to, to train farmers on how to do things better and perhaps give them a more reliable source of, of shrimps, which, you know, it feels as, a, as an animal organization, it sometimes can feel very uneasy. Yeah. But if we, we think that in a theoretical exercise, if, if, the world definitely needed that that a certain amount of biomass of shrimps. If a disease can be decreased, because about forty percent of animals really reach from hatchery to harvest, mm. if mortality can be decreased, if if disease can be decreased, then the number of animals that would fulfill that same demand would be a fraction. Yeah. yeah. So we think that there's a you know to the extent that stocking density is squarely within what we want to focus on, then we think there's a good chance of reducing reducing suffering without being too antagonistic to industry. Yeah. Is there a possible downside where if you kind of help the industry be more productive in a sense by, you know, by, by being more rational about the stocking density so, so they don't have so many diseases and the shrimp grow larger, that, uh, that in effect would, by making the farms more productive, would then lower the price and cause people to consume more shrimp and that that could uh, at least like like totally or partially offset the, the good that you're doing? I think there is an argument to be made that there's a risk. So for example, water quality, if a pond just has so much better water, it could withstand more animals, right? Mm. And a farmer could grow more animals in a, you know, all things held equal. I think that's why our work needs to be a proof of concept that higher welfare shrimps can be produced and eventually down the line in the short term, 
there needs to be work also with consumer awareness and legislation and and other things. And we can be just a, a proof of concept that these higher welfare shrimps mm. can be produced. But if it were just shrimp welfare project for the foreseeable future, and we are the only intervention, then yes, I think there's a there's a credible risk, especially with technology that is allowing for greater and greater intensification. I think that would be a, a huge concern. Yeah, I might have to think about this a bit more, but uh, it would feel surprising to me if the expansion of the industry that you were driving was sufficient to offset the welfare gain. But uh, I, I don't know, that's just an intuition that I have. I, I might have to think that through more in order to figure out where that's where that's coming from. So on, on the current margin, there's a for-profit case to reduce the stocking density. At some point where you'd succeeded in persuading more of the industry to, to do that, what might be the next frontier uh, in terms of improving well-being and, and how might you persuade people to take it up? I would think humane slaughter would be something very promising. You know, once the jury is out uh, regarding exactly what are the best practices for electrical stunning, for example, that could be very promising for shrimp farming. But also, in, when we were talking about uh, wild caught shrimps at the beginning, those trillions of animals in shipping in, in fishing vessels. The technology can be installed in, in, in fishing vessels. And if those trillions of animals can be put through those systems where they are stunned as soon as they're pulled out of the water, I think that could also be extremely promising. Yeah. You, you were talking about uh, trying to maybe create some sort of certification for high welfare shrimp, which is the kind of thing that exists for, uh, I guess, pigs and cows and some other animals, I think currently, at least in some countries, but doesn't exist for shrimp. Yeah. Can you talk more about the customer or like demand facing side of this of this whole enterprise? Yeah, absolutely. I think more than us doing the certification, I would think that we try to push for, for certifiers to incorporate higher welfare um, components or modules is what they call it in their certification schemes. Mm. And here we defer a lot to uh, the Aquatic Life Institute. They, their theory of change is really to work with, with certifiers and I think they do a really good job. And the best thing we can do there, I think, is to try and make our knowledge available to ALI, to the certifiers and to eventually also to retailers that, you know, that high welfare shrimp can be produced. Eventually we hope to know more than, you know, your average organization about what does a high welfare life for a shrimp looks like, what a net positive life looks like for a shrimp and try and use that to inform other relevant actors. Yeah. Could you potentially start your own shrimp farm in order to kind of do research on humane raising methods and I guess then also figure out what effects different, you know, our welfare improving methods might have on yields? Yes, we we considered this and there's sort of ways in which we could do a, a proxy of that as well. Um, we could just guarantee a farmer to to buy the whole crop is what, what they call like a, a full harvest of, of animals. Hmm. We have found that it looks like it may be unnecessary as of today to do that. We are in discussions with universities in India who have a very, they're very influential in teaching farmers how to do things. Farmers really seem to follow their advice. And it seems that we might be able to do a lot of those experiments without necessarily us being involved directly in the, in the production of, 
of the of the shrimps. And we want to make sure as well that whatever we do is really replicable at a commercial scale. Because many times what happens is that when, when you try and, and move something from the lab to mm. a pond, an earthen pond somewhere in the middle of Andhra Pradesh, it might not necessarily translate as easily. So I think we're first going to try out these partnerships before we explore those others. But there's certainly a possibility. Yeah. Would you feel personally uncomfortable being so directly involved in farming shrimp, given that you now actually have quite quite a high level of intuitive compassion for shrimp? Yes, definitely. I mean, there are theoretically ways in which we have considered becoming part of the shrimp supply chain. So, for example, one additional idea could be that someone establishes a brand that only sells super high welfare shrimp and try and transition demand to those shrimps and, and really make that the selling point to consumers and try and pull consumers towards just having more awareness in a way that is financially self-sustainable. Those types of things we have crossed our minds. Mm. We all at um, SWP, we're still nowhere near um, there because precisely of the, the risk of causing harm. Yes. Totally. So you mentioned that early on when you were starting the organizations, which I, which I guess was only over a year or so ago, uh, you considered all, uh, the full spectrum of different possible ways that you could try to help shrimp. Yeah, what are some other strategies that you seriously considered but decided not to pursue? So legislation, influencing legislation, we think can be very impactful, particularly influencing trade legislation in the importing countries. So most of the shrimps are produced in Asia, and as we discussed in a little bit in, in Latin America, and most of them are then exported to the US, the EU and UK and Japan. Mm. So if these countries or regions were to increase or, or raise the bar of animal welfare for their imports, then that could be extremely impactful. Yeah, We felt that we were potentially not the best position to do that mm. and that it might be extremely high leverage, but might take uh, longer and that someone also needed to help these animals today. As we grow our team in the future, as, as you mentioned, we're only one year, less than one year into existence. As we grow our team, we'll, we'll potentially consider whether we expand into other areas. We could have also really focused on just campaigning for, for more awareness with consumers mm. in Europe, US. We haven't done that yet. We, we might in the future. I think consumers, when we speak about the way that shrimps are produced... Everyone essentially says that they would have liked to know that. Mm. It's the same with most of the food, the way that, that our food is produced, be it vegetables, particularly animal protein yeah. and aquaculture. I think most people are really completely in the dark. Yeah. So you, you were considering trying to work on the consumer side, I guess, informing people about the conditions so that then either they might stop eating shrimp or demand higher, higher well-being. Because it seems like we've been working on that for so many decades, trying to persuade people to become vegetarian or demand better living conditions for animals. And at least in the US, it seems like the progress on, on that front has not been, not been huge. It, there's a definitely a much bigger subculture now of people who are very seriously concerned about animal well-being. It feels like the animal movement is a lot bigger than it was 50 years ago, 40 years ago. But we haven't really seen a massive sea change in consumer behavior on a wide scale. Is that one thing that maybe deterred you from taking the, the consumer first approach? Yes, that combined with the fact that shrimps are probably in the, in the spectrum of likable creatures 
they're probably not in the in the top of uh, almost anyone's list. Yeah, if you can't persuade people to stop torturing pigs, <laughs> how are you going to persuade them to stop being cruel to shrimp? Ex- exactly, exactly. I think it's still promising to see that, for example, people pay the premium that they do for cage-free egg, for example. Mm. If if anything like that were to translate into shrimps, that could be you know that could be a, a sea of change mm. to the welfare of, of these animals. In theory, the, our surveys say that people would be willing to pay that. In practice, I think there's very little evidence that that, that consumers are willing to pay that yet for, I mean, for fishes and now I would say for, for shrimp. There's a tiny organic market that does command a huge premium, but it's, mm. you know, it's a drop in the ocean. Yeah, do you agree with my like moderately pessimistic take on the impact that uh, animal welfare advocacy has had on consumer behavior? Yes, yeah, I think it's still needed. I think there is, um, because of the suffering that's inflicted, that we inflict as, as, as human beings, it needs to be attacked on all fronts. Mm. But I do agree that there hasn't been the, the change in, in consumer preferences that, yeah. that one would hope. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, it has been kicking goals on the hens, on, on the egg-laying hen side uh, recently. And well, one thing it has done, I think, is create a much larger audience of people who are in principle receptive to taking a risk on trying new meat alternatives if they're available. I think it's going to definitely smooth the path to market for meat alternatives as they begin to approach meat in terms of taste and cost. And in in some countries, I think I I was thinking at the US as a place where certainly to the legislative change, things have been (laughs) very limited success. But in other countries like the UK and I think Switzerland uh, and, and a handful of others, it feels like the animal movement has had more big wins in terms of affecting behavior on a society-wide scale. I agree. And when, now that you mentioned alternative proteins, we are very hopeful of the fact that, um, and this was brought to my attention by my co-founder who was really excited when we, we realized this, is that the tissue of shrimps is much more uniform right. than it is for other animals. So it's much easier to replicate on a lab to mm. do cell-based shrimp tissue or or to replicate it with with plant protein i see yeah so that's a potentially promising approach to really make a radical shift i feel like i've had vegan shrimp before and i recall being stunned by how similar it tasted to shrimp at least as far as i could recall how it tasted when i was when i was younger is like plant-based shrimp alternatives um a viable approach I would hope so. I I had vegan shrimp when I was at DAG mm. in London when we, <laughs> when we met at at one of the events, and I thought it was it was fantastic. The big caveat is that I probably haven't had the the, the real thing in a couple of decades, so I yeah. I wouldn't know. But I think it's promising, and there are a couple of companies, at least um, in based out of Singapore, who I believe I, I've heard people rave about it, but I haven't tried them. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Pushigod, it sounds like most of your operations are actually in places or like most of the stuff you're doing kind of on the ground is in India and Vietnam, I guess, because those are places where a very large number of shrimp are farmed and maybe also because those are places where the packing density tends to be particularly high. What what are some of the complications of operating (laughs) in countries that are like quite culturally different and maybe just logistically challenging to operate in as someone from Mexico who's living in Spain? Yeah, good point. So I would say the main thing is there's the obvious ones like language, especially in Vietnam. I have found that in in India, a lot more people speak English and we can communicate more easily. In Vietnam, it's been harder. Mm. Then there's issues around 
infrastructure of the country. So it's difficult to try to implement big technological improvements in in some of the areas where the where the shrimps are are produced. There's another point of the typical farmer in these countries is a very small holding farmer who mm. probably has less than half a hectare. There again, it's difficult to ask them to make big changes if it's not something that will not hurt their profitability or if there's no some angle of self-interest, it's very difficult to try and make changes that require, you know, big investments or or sacrifice of profitability and things like that. Yeah. Those would be the the biggest challenges I would say. And then COVID, getting to Southeast course, Asia right. during COVID restrictions has been also uh, yeah. a fun thing to deal with. Right. In Vietnam, do you take around a translator or, or I, I guess you, you've hired some Vietnamese folks who perhaps are doing the translating for you? Yeah, so we're at a, very, a much earlier stage than we are in India, mm. just because India was launched earlier. And what we've done is we've hired a, a program coordinator. She is Vietnamese. She she grew up there. She is fantastic. And she is going to be heading our teams in, in Vietnam. So it's really her team that will do all this work. Yeah. Was it hard to find a local Vietnamese uh, person who was impassioned to work on shrimp welfare? I, actually, I'm, I'm, more broadly, I'm kind of curious to hear about, uh, maybe you don't know about this because you're at an early stage in Vietnam, but as I understand it, Vietnam is now not a very religious country, but in terms of religious influence, Buddhism is one of the larger cultural influences in, in, in Vietnam still today. I, I wonder whether you ever noticed that people are perhaps more open to the idea of shrimp sentience because of, like, or, or, or close to it because of like background cultural reasons. We are part of a um, coalition of animal organizations and they're doing great work. And when we talk kind of behind closed doors, some of the folks that work in the organizations haven't even told uh, other people very openly that they work with, with animal welfare issues mm. because it just seems like it's not perceived as a very prestigious job. So it doesn't seem that mm. the Buddhism angle has permeated a lot, in at least as it relates to, to shrimps. Yeah. So, so what motivated your lead in Vietnam to, to take the job? I think she's a naturally curious person mm. who took the time to read our job description more thoroughly and and she's very analytical and rational and was really compelled about the case um of it was a a very simple job description but they had the your typical effective altruism framework of mm. importance neglectedness and tractability mm. and it just clicked for her it seems yeah we we got to get them out to ear global <laughs> sometime i'm fascinated to meet this person what sorts of other people have you had to hire onto your team so we currently have uh, program coordinators for both India and Vietnam. We have a um, couple of researchers, one doing more secondary research around welfare and things like that. He uh, studied economics in, he's Australian. And then we have another um, person who's helping us with mostly consumer research and behavior. And she's based out of the US and they're all animal people and the most of them very very involved with the with the effective altruism community yeah sounds like you're basically a fully remote team which i guess makes sense given that the whole operation has come together still during the still during covid times we are we plan to be less so because the 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 idea is that i will also move very shortly to vietnam but i keep saying that for um, <laughs> for a few months now so hopefully that will take place uh, very shortly yeah 
know, just sort of another issue with Vietnam, and I guess to a lesser extent, India. I mean, Vietnam is still on paper a communist or at least a socialist country, and I think they're not super receptive to having do-gooders come in from Western countries and tell them what to think and how to live and influencing their politics and so on. How did you get past any kind of restrictions on foreign advocacy in Vietnam? And I guess India, if that's an issue as well. That's a very good question. And it took a very long time to figure it out. But one of the benefits of us having this industry collaborative approach is that in these countries, we operate as basically a consultancy company that comes in and helps farmers improve their, incorporate best welfare focused practices. Mm. So we're not officially a charity and we don't act mm. as such in, in these countries where we're a consultant. I see. So you're a for-profit consultancy working on, <laughs> from, from their point of view, agricultural productivity, which I guess, interestingly, given the story you were saying earlier, isn't actually that far from the truth, at least on the current margin. That is correct, yeah. Yeah. Who funds you? So we got our initial seed grant from Charity Entrepreneurship from the incubation program, which we were really thankful for because that allowed us to get the project off the ground. Since then, we have also received support from the EA Animal Welfare Fund. We've received uh, donations from individuals, non-negligible donations from individuals, which they can do so through our webpage. Mm. And we are currently at the due diligence phase of an Annual Charity Evaluations Movement Mm. Grant. So hopefully those are the kind of recognizable names of people supporting us. We're basically an EA-originated organization and from an EA-originated idea, and we're basically being funded by by EA. Yeah. Who was willing to take kind of the the first risk of giving you the the first bit of money to to get this off the ground floor? This was charity entrepreneurship. Um, I believe they channeled um, funds from other large EA foundations, yeah. but it, it officially came through charity entrepreneurship to us. Yeah. How can people in the audience potentially help? I suppose, obviously, they can go to your to, to your website and learn more and potentially just donate personally. Um, are, there, are there other ways that, that people could, contrib- could contribute? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, thanks for asking that. So we are currently looking for an aquaculture specialist who will have experience in shrimp farming. It's not an easy profile to find. Mm. And if anyone knows anyone uh, like this, Mm. please put them in touch with us. Also, we intend to start looking for uh, someone who will help us with operations, given that we have a UK entity which will become a a UK registered charity, an entity in Vietnam, etc. We have a lot of work for an operations person. Totally. Yeah, the, um, donations. And then just spreading the word that shrimps are morally relevant beings and direct people to our website to become more informed. Yeah. And ultimately, if they want to reach out to me, it's not very hard to find. I think my, my email is on our website. And if not, I'm typically also on LinkedIn relatively frequently. Yeah. Is it possible for you to maybe become a for-profit at some point? Because you kind of are engaging in consultancy that to some extent both helps with welfare and potentially also helps the farms operate better. Is is it possible to move from a non-profit to a for-profit venture, at least for for some part of your revenue? I think so. And I think that's one thing that um, my co-founder Aaron has thought about more than me. And I think it's within the realm of possibilities. So far, we haven't 
tried to make the move yet, but I think if we are right and our interventions really improve the health of the animals and, and the well-being without necessarily sacrificing too much profit for industry, there should be an interest from people to hire us to to help them do things better. Yeah. Well, this has been um, super fascinating. I, I really appreciate that there's people in my social network doing stuff that's as uh, outlandish and fascinating and, I mean, hopefully successful as the uh, as the Shrimp, Shrimp Welfare Project. So, uh, yeah, thanks for being willing to take a bet on, <laughs> on something that other people uh, thus far had not been willing to. Rob, thanks a lot for having me. It was really a lot of fun to talk to you, uh, as much as it was in, in London when we met. Yeah, my guest today has been Andres jimenez Torria. Thanks so much for coming on 80K After Hours, Andres. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. And thanks to your audience. If you enjoyed that, you should go subscribe to 80K After Hours for more similar stuff. The tagline of that show again is resources on how to do good with your career and anything else we feel like releasing. On 80K After Hours, of course, you'll find the latest release that I mentioned in the intro, Kieran and Louisa discussing free will, whether determinism should change our reactions to our personal weaknesses, as well as the pros and cons of giving up guilt, shame and pride. You can also go listen to Marcus Davis on founding and leading Rethink Priorities, Kuhan Jayapagasan on effective altruism university groups, Clay Grobard and Robert Denufil on forecasting the war in Ukraine, Michelle and Habiba on what they'll tell their younger selves in the impact of the 80,000 hours one-on-one team. Also, uh, Alex Lawson from the one-on-one team talking about his advice for students having been a teacher for many years. There's also me and Kieran uh, talking about the philosophy that we have for the 80,000 Hours podcast. And there's also audio articles on climate change, uh, anonymous advice, preventing pandemics, founding new projects, space governance, uh, and ambition. All right. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell and Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And of course, Kieran Harris produces both the 80,000 Hours podcast and 80K After Hours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Hold up. 